0: Good evening everybody, good evening, Um, welcome to the LSE, nice to see so many people um, choosing the alternative attraction from the cheap lager and sunshine outside. Um, (laughs) My name is Charlie Beckett uh, and I'm chairing tonight. Uh, I run something called POLIS which is the media think tank uh, here at the LSE and uh, the reason you may ask what on earth is he standing there, he's not a historian. Um, but I was very pleased when I was told that uh, Dominic was coming to talk because uh, I read uh, the first book, what was it called, Dominic?
1: Never Had It So Good.
0: Never, Of course, Never Had It So Good, indeed, Um, which uh, goes up to 64.
1: Yeah, the end of 63.
0: 63, 64, and of course this latest one, uh, which is at 74, 79, and of course, well not of course, but that period happens to coincide with uh, my life. And uh, so I've been absolutely enjoying, of course, the early years when I, w- I you know, confess was not entirely conscious of the great affairs of state and so on that was happening. But by the time we get to this book, I am sort of semi-conscious uh, at some of the time. And uh, reading it, and it is an absolutely fantastic book. I, I don't know if you've probably seen the TV series, which was extraordinarily entertaining, but the book, I would say, is even better. Uh, the detail and the, the range of thought is, is wonderful and, and a wonderful narrative. But of course, you know, he, he gets it completely wrong. Uh, you know, this period was uh, actually about sex and it was about football um, or at least it was uh, from my perspective and of course that's the, the attraction of Dominic's writing is that he's not writing from a kind of I was there standpoint I was saying earlier that you know, with respect to the great historians of the 60s You know, there are clouds of marijuana distorting some of the memories. And so it's extremely refreshing to have somebody who can look back at these periods uh, with uh, an objective and very fresh take on on what happened. So I'm very, very pleased to have Dominic here to talk. He's going to lecture for about 40 minutes, and then we'll welcome your your questions. So Dominic Sambra.
1: Thanks a lot for that, uh, Charlie, and for being so nice about the book. I will give you your £10 at the end of the lecture. Um, Thank you to all of you for coming. I know it's a lovely day uh, outside, and I'm flattered that so many of you have um, chosen to come rather than to enjoy the rare moments of sunshine. And I'm afraid I'm going to be taking you um, in the next 40 minutes to a rather colder and darker place. Because I think if you had to pick the most miserable month in British history since the end of the Second World War, then you could do a lot worse than choose January 1979. For one thing, as many of you may remember, the weather was abysmal. On New Year's Day, Manchester suffered the worst blizzard since the First World War. The next day, all postal services and milk supplies were canceled, while the AA asked drivers to stay off the roads unless absolutely necessary and to take a shovel and a flask of tea if they really had to travel. In North Wales, the roads were covered with four inches of ice. In Scotland, the beer froze in the pub cellars. In Cornwall, a midwife armed with three candles and a kettle of water boiled on an open fire helped a young mother to give birth in a house where the electricity and the water had both been cut off. And in South Devon, the newly married Scott and Valerie Healy tramped through the snow-filled lanes in a desperate attempt to get to their wedding reception which was being held, bizarrely, in Essex, 300 miles away. Hanging onto their suitcases, wrote a reporter, they clambered down a cliff to reach a fishing boat on an isolated beach at South Ham's. After a 20-mile boat trip, they reached Plymouth and caught a train for Essex. They made it in the end, only 24 hours late. But what everybody remembered about the first weeks of 1979 wasn't so much the weather as it was the strikes. For five years, the Labour governments of Harold Wilson and Jim Callaghan had been fighting a desperate rearguard battle against inflation, begging and cajoling the trade unions to accept a series of informal pay deals that had helped bring it down from almost 30% to less than 10%. But in the autumn of 1978, after years of stagnant, even declining living standards, the shop stewards' patience had snapped. One by one, defying Callaghan's 5% pay limit, the unions walked out, first the wor- workers at the Ford Motor Company, then the lorry drivers, then the sewage workers, and finally, most famously, the low-paid public sector workers on whom so many essential services depended, the caretakers, the cleaners, the dustmen, even the gravediggers. Now, later, the so-called winter of discontent became a crucial element of Tory propaganda. Indeed, as late as 1997, the Conservatives were still insisting that a Labour victory would mean the dead going unburied and rubbish piling up in the streets. So not surprisingly, therefore, many historians have been keen to underplay it, to argue that the crisis was inflated or even invented by the Tory press. But I'm not so sure. The lorry driver's strike alone took a terrible toll on the nation's morale. In Bolton, Oldham and Stockport, the schools closed because of the shortages of heating oil In London, Nottingham and Manchester, all the bus services were cancelled because of fuel shortages. On Liverpool docks, half a million pounds worth of tomatoes and cucumbers lay rotting on the quayside. As supermarkets ran out of sugar, butter, milk and salt, the reports of panic buying from all over the country. In Newcastle, one store manager watched women literally fighting for the last goods on the shelves. In Hyde, Cheshire, another manager reported that seeing the shoppers scuffle for food was, he said, like watching a swarm of locusts. In Greater Manchester, a million people were left without water. In South Wales, a disgruntled shotgun-toting farmer even opened fire on pickets outside a flour mill in Abergavenny, injuring three of them. The only distraction from the nation's troubles, it seemed, was the extraordinary saga of the snowbound FA Cup tie between Arsenal and Sheffield Wednesday, who in those days of endless replays had to play five times before Arsenal went through. As the Sheffield Wednesday fan and Monty Python star Michael Palin wrote in his diary, amidst all this gloom, it was a golden ring of light. Now, like many bright young men who'd been at university in the 60s, Michael Palin held vaguely liberal convictions. Usually, he wrote... He saw strikes as a healthy sign, that there are people out there among the computers and the rationalizations. But now Palin's patience was wearing thin. The two rail unions hate each other, he wrote in his diary, with the result that while many of the country's road hauliers are on strike, the railways, far from benefiting and offering interrupted service in these cold, grey days, which would win them enormous goodwill, they're going on strike too. Another Labour supporter, the director of the new National Theatre, Peter Hall, was similarly shocked by the news that the railway drivers had walked out. We are a society of greed and anarchy, no honour, no responsibility, no pride, he wrote bitterly on the 13th of January. I sound like an old reactionary, which I'm not, but what we have now isn't socialism, it's fascism, with those who have power injuring those who do not. Six days later, flying to Toronto, Peter Hall felt, he wrote, sad to leave an embattled England, to come to a place which is clean, well-organised and efficient. The British people, he thought, seemed to be presiding over the collapse of decency and integrity without the energy even to realise what's happening. God, the tattiness of England now. And for card-carrying Conservatives, the strikes merely confirmed their long-standing dread of the trade unions. The lower-class bastards can no more stop going on strike, wrote the poet Philip Larkin to his friend Kingsley Amis, than a laboratory rat with an electrode in its brain can stop jumping on a switch to give itself an orgasm. In the next few weeks, the crisis worsened. On the 22nd of January, the public sector unions called a day of action in pursuit of a minimum wage of £60 a week. With an estimated 1.5 million people walking out, it was the most effective industrial action since the general strike of 1926. Almost all the schools were shut, so were all the public buildings, the museums, the parks, the leisure centres, the public libraries and the airports. And where the lorry drivers had led, the low-paid dustmen, nurses, hospital porters, ambulance drivers, caretakers, canteen staff, maintenance men, bus drivers and gravediggers now followed. On Merseyside, there were no burials. Across the country, hospitals turned away all but emergency cases. The next day, the unions announced a programme of continuous action until their pay claims were granted. Of course, nobody died, but the children were locked out of schools, 999 calls did go unanswered, icy roads did go ungritted, and cancer patients were sent home. After walking through Covent Garden on the 2nd of February, Michael Palin recorded, I had to pick my way through piles of uncollected garbage piled up in the passageway from Monmouth Street. And a week later, he observed, The piles of uncollected rubbish are now being blown apart by the wind, leaving the West End resembling a tip from which buildings emerge. The winter of discontent lasted two months before the government backed down, giving the public sector unions a 10% pay increase, which was double their original offer. But what made it both so resonant and so damaging was that it was merely the latest in a series of crises that had dominated the headlines for the past dozen years. Some historians keen to puncture the myth of Margaret Thatcher as Britain's saviour after years of decline claim that actually the 60s were a pretty good decade. But I'm not convinced. 12 years earlier in 1967, Harold Wilson's first Labour government have been forced to abandon its economic strategy and devalue the pound, setting the scene for more than a decade of pretty awful headlines. A year later, sectarian rioting broke out in Northern Ireland, and in 1969, the government was forced to send in the army to restore order. In 1970, strikes by the council and electricity workers saw rubbish piled for the first time in the streets, and homes plunged into darkness. In 1972, a miners' strike brought industry to a standstill, And in 1974, another miners' strike brought Edward Heath's Conservative government to its knees. By 1975, the impact of the OPEC oil shock and a wave of union pay claims had pushed inflation to almost 30%. And in the autumn of 1976, besieged on the international markets, Britain was compelled to seek a humiliating bailout from the IMF. Now, for a brief period, Sonny Jim Callaghan seemed to have restored calm. That illusion wasn't just dispelled by the winter of discontent, it was smashed into a hundred pieces. Back in 1974, voters had told themselves that the crisis was all Ted Heath's fault and that a new government would sort it all out. But now they were back to the same headlines about strikes and power cuts. Never had the prospects for industrial peace seemed bleaker, and perhaps never, certainly since the Second World War, had the British state itself seemed so helpless. And even irrelevant. The crisis of the 70s had severe economic repercussions for families across the country. Unemployment in the last years of the 60s was barely half a million, but by the time Margaret Thatcher took power it was already one and a half million. Hence her famous poster, Labour isn't working, which shows an endless queue outside a job centre. After years of affluence, full employment and buoyant growth, living standards weren't just standing still, they were actually falling. By December 1977, the take-home pay of an ordinary family with two children was actually worth £4 less in real terms than it had been four years earlier. And in particular, and unlike the crisis, for example, that we have today, this was one that affected predominantly the rich. By today's standards, income taxes were very high indeed. The top rate under labour, was 83%, and the top rate on investment income, which in fairness very few people paid, was 98%. When England's football manager Don Revy jumped ship to join the United Arab Emirates in 1977, a wonderfully symbolic moment given the impact of the Arab oil shock three years earlier, sorry, four years earlier, Revy partly blamed the treasury. The Sheikh's offer, he said, was an unbelievable opportunity to secure my family's future explaining that the British tax structure, let alone the salaries available, makes it impossible to earn this kind of money at home. And even Doctor Who couldn't resist attacking Dennis Healy's handling of the nation's finances. In the same year, 1977, one adventure finds that Tom Baker's Time Lord travelling to Pluto in the distant future, a society dominated by the corrupt and avaricious company. The people of Pluto live in vast Megropolis tower blocks, where they're ground down by eye-watering taxes. Each megropolis is governed by a gatherer, and each gatherer reports to the collector, a grotesque little man with suspiciously Dennis Healey-esque eyebrows, (laughs) who says things like, grinding oppression of the masses is the only policy that pays dividends. And this wasn't just Saturday night escapism. It was part, I think, of a growing chorus of middle-class discontent. And behind all this lay two deeper changes. One was the transition from imperial dominion, which was largely complete by 1970, but I think was only just sinking in to the nation's psyche. The IMF bailout of 1976 brought it vividly home to millions, and so too did the antics of the Ugandan dictator Idi Amin, who had been trained in the British Army, but now embarrassingly loved nothing better than showing up his former masters. He delights in insulting and provoking Britain, in seeing Britain squirm, in insulting British diplomats in Kampala, and in demonstrating his power to those in Africa who admire him, said the Daily Express. And whatever people might think of the British Empire, all this was profoundly humiliating. In Margaret Drabble's novel, The Ice Age, which was published in 1977, one character reflects miserably on the way in which other nations had turned against England, England was a safe, shabby, mangy old lion now. Anyone could tweak her tail. Others put it rather more bluntly. When you were a child, you had it drilled into you that Great Britain was great, a black country shop steward told Time magazine. But what are we today? When a Tuppenny haepney sergeant like Armine takes the piss out of Britain, it's a pretty mean level we've sunk to. The other major development was the traumatic transition from an industrial heavyweight to a largely post-industrial service economy. And nothing summed this up better than the car industry, once the envy of Europe, but now fast becoming an international joke. Insulated for too long from European competition, hobbled by atrocious labour relations and doomed by the catastrophic decision to merge almost all the remaining funds into the leviathan of British Leyland, the motor industry had long been sliding towards oblivion. By the late 1970s, productivity was falling well behind. While a Japanese worker produced 12 cars a year and an American 15 cars, a British worker produced five. Exports collapsed. By the end of the 1970s, West Germany's car manufacturers sold 10 times as many cars abroad as their British competitors. But it was a similar story in other industries too. British Steel's productivity record, for example, was simply atrocious. In 1975, a British steel worker produced 122 tonnes a year. A German produced 370 tonnes. And a Japanese steel worker, 520. So it was little wonder that as early as 1971, the social commentator Anthony Sampson wondered whether the first industrial nation will become the first to opt out of mass industry. With, he wrote... The British people reverting to their pre-industrial values, to their skills in farming, trading, insurance and entertainment. Of course, he was very prescient. Now, you can tell quite a lot, I think, about a society by what people think is going to happen next. And in the mid-1970s, very few people looked forward with any great optimism. When Gallup asked people for their expectations for 1975, 40% said they expected things to deteriorate a lot. 26% said they expected things to deteriorate slightly, 8% to improve slightly, and 2% improve a lot. And what this reflected wasn't just the shock of the downturn after a quarter of a century of steady growth, but a profound pessimism, I think, about the future of the United Kingdom itself, which found echoes in everything from the record emigration rate to the stunning surge of Scottish and Welsh nationalism. And although predictions of the future often tend to be pretty depressing, the 70s undoubtedly marked something of a low point. So in Doris Lessing's novel Memoirs of a Survivor, published in 1974, we are in a decaying and threatened city sometime in the near future, public services cut off, air poisoned, looted buildings standing empty. And in 1975, J.G. Ballard's high-rise imagined the residence of an ultra-modern tower block turning to tribal violence, murder, and cannibalism after yet another power cut. If anything, TV visions of the future were even less cheerful. In the BBC series Survivors, which started in the same year, all but a handful of the world's population are wiped out by a terrible pandemic, which leaves the rest to trudge miserably across the countryside in their anoraks. The show's creator, Terry Nation, then produced an even grimmer vision of the future in Blake 7, where the fascistic federation maintains order by brainwashing and pacifying the masses with drugged food, water and air. And then there was the BBC One series 1990, which ran for two series in 1977-78, largely forgotten today, but it was, I think, in many ways, a science fiction equivalent of an editorial in the Daily Express. In this vision of the near future... A bankrupt Britain that's banned immigration and suspended habeas corpus is governed under a permanent state of emergency by a coalition of Labour politicians and trade unionists. The West End has been boarded up. Eton has become a comprehensive school for the children of the trade union elite. And perhaps most shocking and terrifying of all, the Daily Mail has been closed down. As the show's star Edward Woodward told the Radio Times... It's much more frightening than 1984 because it's closer to us than Orwell's book was to his own generation. It's really just around the corner. But, of course, not everybody was quite so gloomy about what tomorrow might bring. After all, by far the most popular vision of the future, despite, I know, being set a long time ago, was Star Wars, which was largely shot in the home counties with a predominantly British cast but obviously had little immediate political resonance. And the most controversial politician of the age, who had little time for either high culture or populist entertainment, insisted that Britain's best days still lay ahead. Presented with Kingsley Amos' novel Russian Hide and Seek, yet another gloomy glimpse into the future, the new conservative leader asked what it was about. Well, Amos proudly said, In a way, it's about a future Britain under Russian occupation. Huh, said Margaret Thatcher. Can't you do better than that? Get yourself another crystal ball. But in the mid-70s, not even the most far-sighted crystal ball-gazer could have imagined how Margaret Thatcher would come to dominate our memories of the era. Now today, of course, the idea of the Iron Lady as a transformative prime minister has become indelibly fixed in our national consciousness, Indeed, more than 30 years after she first walked into number 10, Mrs. Thatcher remains the supreme folk devil of the left and the peerless heroine of the right. The very fact that her life has been turned into a Hollywood film is, of course, tremendously revealing. The prospect of a big-budget biopic of Harold Wilson or John Major or (laughs) Ted Heath is perhaps not entirely appealing, and it's hard to see audiences flocking to a film that celebrates the life of David Cameron or Ed Miliband. But the success of Meryl Streep's portrayal is merely, I think, another sign that even for a generation who can't remember her, Mrs. Thatcher has crossed over from history into myth. And the great irony of all this is that back in the mid to late 1970s, when Mrs. Thatcher was leading her party in opposition, it would have seemed so utterly implausible. After all, her victory in the 1975 Conservative Leadership Contest, which followed Ted Heath's defeats in two successive elections the year before, was something of a fluke. Many of her senior colleagues disliked her and the press was sceptical about her chances. When she visited Heath to tell him, as a matter of courtesy, that she was planning to stand against him, he didn't even bother to get out of his chair, but merely shrugged and said, you'll lose. Her hero, Enoch Powell, predicted that the Conservatives would never elect her because he said they wouldn't put up with that, those hats and that accent. And even her husband, Dennis, publicly so steadfast, didn't rate her chances. You must be out of your mind, he said. You haven't got a hope. As it turned out, though, Dennis was wrong because luck was with her. Having already lost three out of four elections, Heath had made himself even more unpopular with his fellow Tory MPs because of his disastrously rude behaviour. As he unguardedly had told one backbencher, there are three sorts of people in this party. Shits, bloody shits, and fucking shits. (laughs) Mrs Thatcher was also lucky that the most likely candidates to succeed him, Reginald Maudling, Willie Whitelaw, and Keith Joseph, had all contrived to rule themselves out of the contest. Maudling, because he'd been exposed for financial corruption, Whitelaw, because he refused to abandon his beleaguered leader, and Joseph, because he'd been discredited after some disastrous remarks about working-class birth rates posing a threat to the life of the nation. So, even though many of Mrs. Thatcher's colleagues had their doubts about her aptitude and her intellect, she became, by default, the standard-bearer of rebellion. Of course, her right-wing views were well-known and played their part, but what really wanted the Tory leadership was the fact that she wasn't Edward Heath. As Enoch Powell later put it, she was opposite the spot on the roulette wheel at the right time, and she didn't funk it. What the Iron Lady's partisans often forget, though, is what happened next. In the House of Commons, she proved a complete and utter flop. Even though her first opponent, Labour's Harold Wilson, sometimes needed four or five stiff drinks to steady his nerves, before question time, he still wiped the floor with her. The only interest is to see Margaret Thatcher sitting sitting there looking petrified, like a rabbit in front of a stoat, wrote Wilson's policy chief on the 17th of April 1975. And Ted Heath, sitting, waiting stonily in the corner, below the gangway, with no sign of life, until Harold puts the boot into her when a wintry smile crosses Ted's face. <laughs> and when Wilson gave way to Jim Callahan in 1976, things got even worse for Mrs Thatcher. Always ready with a chauvinist remark, Callahan forever seemed to be patting her on the head. Now, now, little lady, he once remarked across the dispatch box, You don't want to believe all these things you read in the papers... ...about crisis and upheavals and the end of civilization, Deary me, not at all. And what made this so damaging was that it strengthened the impression... ...that Mrs Thatcher was merely a short-term anomaly. Like William Hague or Ian Duncan Smith, or perhaps even Ed Miliband... ...she seemed a fluke, an aberration, a dud, elevated in the shock of defeat. When she first became Tory leader in February 1975 her approval rating was a healthy 64%, yet within four months it had fallen to just 35%. The Mirror claimed that she looked like the, the TV comedian Mike Yarwood in drag, while in the Sunday Times, the playwright Dennis Potter wrote that with her small pouring gestures and glossy head tilted at a rather too carefully alert angle, she reminds me of everyone's favourite celluloid bitch, Lassie. There was in this, of course, a heavy dose of sexism, Feminism had transformed attitudes less than we might think. Even during the 1979 campaign, one Leicester machinist, Mrs. Betty Poynton, told the press, I don't fancy a woman as prime minister, it's a fella's job. And Thatcher herself evidently had her doubts about whether the public would ever embrace her. In the spring of 1979, she told the BBC that if she lost the election, she'd never get another chance. There's only one chance in life for women, she said. It's the law of life. And all this, I think, helps to explain why, as late as the autumn of 1978, it was by no means obvious that Margaret Thatcher would soon be walking into Downing Street as Britain's first woman prime minister. By far the dominant political personality of the day was Labour's Jim Callaghan, who was widely thought to have an unparalleled grasp of of popular opinion. At a time when tabloid headlines were dominated by punk rockers and football hooligans, Cameron came up... uh, Cameron, which is... (laughs) Two more different men, it's almost impossible to imagine. Uh, At a time when tabloid headlines were dominated by punk rockers and football hooligans, Callaghan came over as a reassuringly gruff and genial presence, a champion of law and order and old-fashioned family values. In October 1977, a year after Britain had been forced to seek its bailout from the IMF, Callaghan's personal approval rating reached 59%, the highest figure for any prime minister for 12 years, and it remained in the mid-50s for the whole of 1978, well ahead of Mrs Thatcher's rating. He's proved a much more effective prime minister than most people had believed possible, conceded the Financial Times. His nerve and sense of purpose have been admirable. He's telling people what they want to hear, admitted the Conservatives' new golden boy, Michael Heseltine. He's playing the big uncle, patting you on the shoulder and telling you to relax while he takes the strain. What destroyed Callaghan's image, of course, was the winter of discontent. His whole appeal had been based on the idea that only Labour could handle the trade unions, winning their consent for his pay policy, cutting strikes and steadily bringing down inflation. But by February 1979, it was obvious that this was a fantasy. Reflecting on the strike of the low-paid Liverpool grave diggers, whose walkout had left corpses piling up in refrigerated warehouses, Callaghan himself wrote that their cold-blooded indifference, these are his words, to the feelings of families at moments of intense grief rightly aroused deep revulsion and did untold harm to the cause of trade unionism that I, like so many others, had been proud to defend all my life. In Cabinet... He told his colleagues that he'd never in 50 years been so depressed as a trade unionist. If Mrs. Thatcher wins, he said, at least the trains will run on time. An extraordinary remark from someone who'd spent his whole life fighting the Tories. But I think Callahan was merely reflecting the instinctive reaction of millions of ordinary people, many of whom weren't really interested in politics at all. Even many who saw themselves as being on the left saw the winter of discontent as a step too far. The Marxist historian Eric Hobsbawm wrote that the unions were, quote, only interested in their members' narrow economic benefits. And the Trotskyist journalist Paul Foote wrote that the strikes of 1979 were nothing more than bloody-minded expressions of revenge and self-interest. Of course, I'm not necessarily agreeing with them, but the very fact that they say it is, of course, highly revealing. And although some historians now claim that the winter of discontent wasn't really as bad as all that, it was certainly pretty bad for the Labour Party. By mid-February, only two out of ten people approved of the government's record, and the Tories now had a whopping 20% lead in the polls. So in the space of just a few months, Margaret Thatcher had gone from anointed loser to red-hot favourite. Now, had Mrs Thatcher been the crusading warrior of right-wing fantasies and left-wing nightmares, then you might have expected the 1979 election to be this great ideological showdown. And today we think of the election as a watershed, the moment when the country took a great step, or a lurch, if you prefer, to the right. But at the time, the BBC's political correspondent, Michael Cockrell, remarked that the campaign was actually lower key and better mannered than most since the war. Indeed, only five out of 10 people thought there were important differences between Labour and the Conservatives. Four out of 10 thought that they were much of a muchness. And to put that into context, never since 1945, had the two parties struck people as being so close together. Now, of course, to 21st century readers who are used to thinking of Mrs. Thatcher as an uncompromising ideological crusader, all of that may sound strange, but at the time she struck a much cannier, more pragmatic figure. In the 1970s, it was the left, not the right, that seemed to be reshaping British society. And so her advisers presented her not as the destroyer of the post-war consensus, but as its defender against the challenges, they, as they saw it, of radical socialism and union militancy. In a manifesto, her economic policy boiled down to vague promises to control the money supply. Although she talked a lot about tax cuts, she offered no specifics. Even her proposed union reforms looked positively trivial compared to Ted Heath's promises in 1970. There was no hint that her economic strategy would almost certainly involve severe hardship for those unfortunate enough to lose their jobs, and there was no sense of a revolution in waiting. At the heart of her campaign was the undefined promise of change. So while Labour ran a nostalgic campaign harking back to 1945 and promising to protect the achievements of the past, it was Mrs Thatcher who talked of a fundamental change of course. We needn't go on as we are, she said again and again. Year after year, we've been falling behind friends and neighbors. If we go on declining, we shall sooner or later fall, and we shall become a quite different kind of country. But there were no specifics. In their place, she offered, quite simply, herself. Now, decades earlier, she'd fled her modest background in the provincial town of Grantham for a new life in Oxford and London, reinventing herself as an upper-middle-class home county Tory. Once she became Tory leader, Grantham became very useful to her. By talking about the grocer's shop and the grammar school, she banished criticism of their husbands' millions, of their privately educated children, and of their gin and tonic lifestyle. I'm a plain, straightforward provincial, she told one interviewer in 1977. And later in the year, extolling the virtues of grammar schools, she told her party conference... People from my sort of background needed grammar schools to compete with children from privileged homes like Shirley Williams and Anthony Wedgwood Ben. The use of Ben's full name, of course, was a particularly clever touch. And there was, of course, another very obvious element to her appeal as an outsider, her femininity. Far from being a drawback, as many commentators had predicted, her femininity, I think, became an asset strengthening the impression that she offered something entirely new, a fresh start under a new broom who knew better than anybody about the difficulty of managing a household budget and the importance of the family. So presented with a giant broom at a Bristol factory, Mrs Thatcher jabbed it at the cameras with the words, we'll sweep them out of Whitehall. Indeed, she even pretended to be the one thing that she had definitely never been, a meek, ordinary, submissive housewife. "'They will turn to me,' she said of the voters, "'because they believe a woman knows about prices.'" This emphasis on Thatcher the outsider was very deliberately crafted. From the outset, her aides were desperate to appeal to working-class housewives, to people who bought their first homes, first-time voters, and ambitious, skilled workers. These were people who read The Sun and The Mirror, people who watched ITV rather than the BBC, people who preferred Coronation Street to I Claudius. They weren't interested, I think, in ideology. What they wanted was a government that kept prices down and strikes to a minimum, that banished the spectre of national decline and allowed them to pursue their dreams of the good life. And although many of these people were trade union members, they were tired of being lectured by their ageing leaders and sick of seeing their living standards stagnate. As an internal party report put it, the Tories would never have a better opportunity to jump the class barrier. It was an opportunity that the grocer's daughter seized with both hands. In the very first rally of the campaign, cheekily arranged in Jim Callaghan's Cardiff constituency, Mrs Thatcher appealed directly to Labour's traditional supporters. Jim Callaghan's party, she said, is no longer the party of Clement Attlee, to whose legacy she now almost incredibly laid claim. There used to be in this country a socialism which valued people, she said. It had dignity and it had warmth. But the Labour Party, she claimed, had been taken over by the extreme left-wingers who want to build a state in which the freedom of the individual is utterly destroyed. And for those voters still loyal to Attlee's legacy, she insisted, we offer you a political home where you can honorably realize the ideals which took you into the Labour Party in the first place. Now, it now seems almost incredible that of all people, Margaret Thatcher said those words. And yet, at the time, they resonated with millions of voters. Because it wasn't only the prosperous middle classes who were drawn to her rhetoric of change. She also attracted four out of ten skilled workers and one in three trade union members. Among skilled workers, there was a massive 11% swing to the Tories, with most of the defectors being young men and women in their 20s and early 30s. And among trade unionists, there was a pro-Tory swing of more than 8%. No doubt Mrs Thatcher's hard line on crime and immigration had something to do with it, but that's surely only part of the story. The truth, I think, is that affluence, ambition and sheer exasperation at stagnant living standards had eaten away at Labour's working-class support. Things could, of course, have been very different. According to the most celebrated counterfactual in modern political history, if only Jim Callaghan called an election in October 1978, before the Winter of Discontent, then Margaret Thatcher would be no more than a historical curiosity. But the very reason that Callaghan put off an election was because his private polls suggested that the Tories would win more seats. And even without the Winter of Discontent, there was a clear public appetite for a change. Even the Guardian Star columnist Peter Jenkins, who had always voted Labour, thought that Britain was stuck, as he put it, in a cycle of falling production, eroding competitiveness, and deteriorated productivity. What it needed, he went on, was a bold government and a psychological break from the dreary cycle of failure. And Jenkins's frustration was widely shared, not just by card-carrying Thatcherites, but by millions of people from all backgrounds. In lots of ways, the talk of failure and decline seems overheated. After all, most people in the 1970s enjoyed more comfortable lives than ever. But to voters reflecting on the turbulent events of the decade, the minor strikes, the three-day week, the IRA bombing campaigns, the double-digit inflation, the corruption scandals, the IMF bailout and the winter of discontent, to those people, talk of the sick man of Europe seemed disturbingly accurate. For anyone who was tired of reading about walkouts and stoppages, or was horrified by the bloodshed in Northern Ireland, or was disgusted about headlines about crime and delinquency, or was disturbed by stagnant salaries and surging prices, or was anxious about the decline of the nation's industries, or was distressed by the spread of permissiveness and pornography, or was suspicious of comprehensive schools and progressive teaching methods, talk of change naturally appealed. Indeed, even Labour's policy chief, Bernard Donoghue, saw the winter of discontent as proof that Britain desperately needed change. The government had its achievements, he wrote later, but we left a country where society appeared divided, national morale was low, and group behavior depressingly bad. He was struck, too, by how dismal certain aspects of life could be for many people in the 1970s. Now, these were the words not of some Tory reactionary, but of a man who'd been the very center of Labour politics throughout the whole decade, a man who had been in charge of dreaming up policies for Harold Wilson and Jim Callaghan. And Donoghue wasn't alone. Polls showed that almost eight out of ten people agreed that it was time for a change. Now, today, the image of 1979 as a moment of supreme change is ineradicably embedded in our national consciousness. Whether you adore or abhor her, everybody agrees that Margaret Thatcher changed everything. But I wonder, if the Iron Lady had been run over by a bus in 1978, would Britain today really be so different? Would we have a booming manufacturing sector and a buoyant car industry? Would mining villages across the country be happy, thriving places? Would the Atlee settlement still be untouched in one piece? I don't think so. I think that even before Mrs Thatcher moved into number 10, the cosy world of the post-war consensus had already collapsed, a victim of surging world prices, rising unemployment, industrial decline, the death of deference, and the emergence of a new generation who took affluence for granted and no longer believed that the man in Whitehall knew best. Three years earlier, Callaghan had told the Labour Conference that Britain's commitment to full employment was no longer sustainable without driving up inflation. And his recipe for recovery, spending cuts, money supply targets, and lengthening dole queues was much closer to Mrs Thatcher's than we often think. During the 1979 campaign, both Callaghan and Thatcher made fighting inflation their chief priority. They were both keen admirers of the Atlantic Alliance and both reluctant supporters of Britain's EEC membership. They both championed law and order. They both spoke up for old-fashioned standards in education. So if Jim Callaghan, the soul of old Labour, had still been running the country in the early 1980s, we might never have heard of Thatcherism. But we would still be living in the world that we think she made. And perhaps this unspoken underlying continuity helps to explain why, on the night of the election, there was so little sense that Mrs Thatcher's victory marked a great sea change. Interviewed on TV while the results were coming in, Most senior Labour Ministers remained remarkably upbeat. In the previous 15 years, after all, they'd fought six elections and won four of them. Modern governments came and went. Nobody, nobody imagined that the Conservatives would be there for the next 18 years. The Tory victory had been solid rather than spectacular. Mrs Thatcher actually won a smaller share of the vote than Ted Heath in 1970 and barely any more than Sir Alec Douglas Hume in 1964. Her manifesto had been vague, her approach was cautious, and her colleagues were known to have their doubts. As the columnist Peregrine Wursthorne had already warned the readers of the Sunday Telegraph, a Tory victory wasn't going to make much difference. There would, he predicted, be neither revolution nor counter revolution. Should Mrs. Thatcher make any changes, they will be measured in inches, not miles. Only a few observers detected signs of the extraordinary turbulence ahead. On the Sunday after the election, the express cartoonist Michael Cummings drew Mrs. Thatcher as an airline pilot, her conservative colleague strapped in nervously behind her. Fasten your seatbelts, reads a giant sign. And in the distance, through the windscreen, storm clouds are gathering. Thank you.
0: Very very much, Dominic. That's um, excellent, and you managed to avoid the fascinating bits in your book about the um, excesses of people in higher education. <laughs> That's tack, very tactful of you. I'll throw it open um, to the audience. But um, before, if I can just ask one of those kind of crass journalistic questions, um, which is not the what if, but yeah. um, I mean, you ended there with with a sense of that people get the um, people don 't know when things are changing at the time, mm-hmm. um, but I think the trajectory in your book is uh, in the period is that is sort of seventy um, nine does open up this next phase, and I wonder whether you think we 're sort of at the end of it. You had the little Freudian slip where you did the Callahan to <laughs> Cameron, but in a sense, there are you know parallels i mean um, not between those individuals particularly but you know, we're in a period of extraordinary economic mm. crisis, funny enough it's a European crisis, class seems as much of a, um, an issue in a way of blockage uh, for, co- for contemporary politics as it's ever been. Um, so not, not, not is this the same as mm. it was in 74, 76, but are we at another point when there may be something a little bit more seismic, Shifting plates, shifting. Yeah, I think we
1: are. I think that's a, a very fair question. Actually, I think we are at a sort of similar a point of uncertainty, um, economic, political, ideological. Um, we're not. I mean, clearly, now in um, May 2012, we're not. We may not be halfway through it because mm. um, we don't know what's going to happen. So I suppose we're. If you want to sort of map it onto the 70s, we're only in 1973 or something. Um, and uh, the sort of I know it's a parallel that David Cameron hates the Cameron Heath uh, parallel which obviously doesn't work in all sorts of ways but maybe does work in the sense that they're both distrusted by their own backbenchers um, which is of course why David Cameron hates the parallel so much Um, and I think we are at a similar moment, I mean the great thing about the 70s that makes it so interesting and so rich is that it it was such a period of uncertainty, nobody knew what was going to happen next uh, for most of the decade, it struck sort of opinion reformers that the left were making all the running. They seem to make all the running in education and culture, uh, politically as well. A lot of the sort of the ideas that get a lot of attention in sort of 1974 or 75 are on the left, the ideas about kind of state intervention industry and taking over companies. Sort of Tony Benn uh, seems to be the man who's making the weather, really. And it's only retrospectively, I think, that we now look and see. You know Keith Joseph and Margaret Thatcher as the sort of weather makers of the mm. 70s. At the time, they seemed a little bit eccentric, and a lot of the sort of predictions that you'd see at the time uh, don't involve a kind of Thatcherite future. Um, so I think it, there's a, a clear parallel there, and that we're at a similar point where the old way of that things worked seems broken, mm. and nobody and people are groping on all sides for um, for answers. One thing that we don't have I guess, that was very uh, powerful in the 70s was a sense that specifically Britain yep. is um, a sort of busted flush. Yep. It's astonishing to think that in sort of 1975, emigration was at its all-time mm-hmm. um, peak, and that somebody like Callaghan, so sort of doggedly patriotic, mm-hmm. when he was Foreign Secretary, would say to his colleagues, I... I <laughs> I often say to myself, if I was a younger man, I would emigrate. Mm. Um, it's hard to think of somebody in power saying that now. I think we have a much greater sense of self confidence. Mm. I think in the 70s, people did feel, even if they didn't admit it to themselves, battered by the loss of empire, by the sense of declining reputation, and so and on.
0: People, you started talking about the kind of misery then, and obviously, you know, age 15, I didn't feel that miserable. <laughs> well, you know, sometimes you felt miserable for completely trivial reasons. But um, you do talk about this sense of despair um, it's strange, isn't it that in a way we're in a bigger crisis now, possibly and yeah. yet I don't quite get the same sort of resonance of cultural despair and uncertainty: no,
1: I don't think I think that's right. I think I mean obviously the despair you know there's lots of people made up maybe people in the audience who say, well I, was, I didn't feel despair at all in the 70s yeah. but I think the poll evidence is pretty um, it's pretty damning really I mean you know forty percent think It'll deteriorate a lot, the two percent improve a lot, um, and of course it did because in seventy four and five, isn't it, all incomes dropped for two. Million yeah, million that's million. right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, um, sorry, what was your uh, the last? We were not as miserable now. No, we're not so as really miserable. F- I think uh, because we have a greater sense. We don't have that pervasive loss of confidence in Britain as an entity. The kind of, the the. Um, uh, image that people used to use a lot of the time, they used to talk about Great Britain Limited or Great Britain PLC and they'd say it's a failing business, we are failing, we are falling behind. Mm-hmm. I don't think people talk about in those terms now they talk about how can we you know, get the economy going and all that kind of thing but they don't have that kind of pervasive sense that we're finished which people used to, yeah. people used to write or oh, we're going to break up and we're finished and it's all doom and gloom yeah. um, that's, that's not here right now I think. Okay, shall
0: Please, throw, loads. Oh, good, Right, loads, loads and loads. I think we'll try and use the microphone. Um, where should we start off? Should we start off over there, and then we'll work away across? Sorry to, we'll, we'll take them one at a time.
2: Hello. Um, the attempted military coup. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, now we've uh, you know, perhaps forty years afterwards, and so many people have died. Have you, in your book, named uh, you know some of the conspirators? Uh, the, the have you in your book named some of the conspirators sorry about military, did you say military coup yes, in Britain yes.
0: yes. the fact that so many of those people oh I see are, right, um, no David Sterling yeah Sterling
1: um, um, uh, uh, well Sir Walter Walker is the great man for um, uh, coup planning uh, and David Sterling of course I mean there's always this um, I think these conspiracies were uh, cons- to call them conspiracies is almost dignifying them a little bit I mean They're sort of slightly... uh, To to my mind, they're slightly glorified versions of sort of uh, former military men sitting round over gin and tonic saying, um, Britain's gone to the dogs, we really should do something about it. The the one question mark, I think, is whether... I mean, the great man that they always used to invoke was Mountbatten. It's this sort of spectre of Mountbatten hangs over 60s and 70s Britain. He's the man who's going to step in as the strong man. Um, And Cecil King, the... Head of the Mirror Group had, of course, famously approached Mountbatten in the late sixties. Um, I think uh, this stuff in the seventies was all pretty low level, actually. I mean, even the sort of MI5 stuff. Um, you know, Peter Wright initially claimed they were all at it, and then they're all bugging and burgling across London. And then he was asked, to, you know, actually, how many people? And he said, well, probably three of us. So I think it's probably a little bit. Um, it's great fun all that coup stuff. But um, I don't think there was any serious possibility of it happening then. Um, there's a, John Keegan was at, the, was at um, Sandhurst, I think, when King came to give a talk in the mid-'70s, and King said, you know, you must all be ready. A load of junior officers were there. You must be ready to step in at any moment. Your country needs you. And the reaction from the floor was so scathing from all these officers who thought this was absolutely ludicrous that suggests that you know, they weren't seriously planning it. The interesting thing, though, is that so many people did think it. I mean, Harold Wilson thought it himself. There's a moment when there was a big controversy in 1976 about mercenaries in Angola. And Wilson gets in a terrible tizzy and says, you know, according to uh, his policy chief's diaries, we should pass some legislation to make sure they can't come over here and start stirring up trouble. And his aides say, you know, get a grip, Harold. That's not really going to happen. But I think... Um, that's the very fact that so many people talking about this, I mean a Weimar Republic analogy was so common I mean, so among mm. political circles um, th- that's revealing about how low morale had sunk I mean I don't think the you know, coup planning ever really got very far or really existed but it's indicative of the mood of the time Okay, should we keep do you mind can come right
0: to the front of this chat Hi there, I'm a um, history student here at oh, the yeah. SE. Um, so I'm going to be an awkward question perhaps. <laughs> okay. um, surrounded as we are by the paraphernalia of flags for the mm-hmm. um, upcoming Jubilee, Heston Blumenthal telling us how to make Jubilee trifle <laughs> and uh, horrific as it is for me as a Republican, allusions to that our monarchy is um, with Prince Charles doing the weather, ever, ever more modern. Do you think there are any precursors to that kind of rigidity to the monarchy in the 70s? And perhaps any? could you say anything about how the 70s and the royalty of the 70s, perhaps played into what has happened with the monarchy in the 80s and perhaps the 90s?
1: Okay, that's a good question. I think the monarchy was at a sort of um, at a turning point in many ways in the 70s, because they'd had the pioneering, fly all the documentary royal family in 1969, which had allowed the cameras in, they'd seen them having a barbecue and all this kind of thing. So they were, op- they were obviously opened up. Um, you have the first of the queen's children to get married in 1973, Princess Anne. So that's the first big royal event Coronation, the first really big event. Um, but almost immediately afterwards, you have the first cracks in the facade, if you like. There was a big controversy about the civil upping the civil list in line with inflation in the early 70s, and you have the MPs beginning to voice, Labour MPs beginning to voice Republican sentiments in a way they wouldn't have done 10 or 20 years earlier, I think. And then, of course, you have Princess Margaret getting divorced in 1976. Um, Harold Wilson uh, advised the Queen that the best day to break the news would be the day he resigned because he said the news would be kept off the front pages. Um, he was rather overestimating his own <laughs> 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 because in the tabloids, you know, Wilson did res- Wilson's resignation was there, but the pictures were of the Margaret Snowden divorce and I think that was the first shot, if you like, in the sort of media palace war that would you know, start raging in the 80s and 90s. Um, so you have a sort of paradox where you have the Silver Jubilee in 77, great outpouring of sort of um, monarchism and patriotism and all the rest of it but the monarchy is on a pretty it's on a slippery slope in the 70s uh, and in many ways the story is you know, the, the kind of a curve isn't it they, they bottom out with the Diana funeral and then bounce back up. Uh, I think in the 70s the although there would have been a lot of old among deference, among old, um, sort of um, almost unconscious deference among older people. I think the, in many ways the monarchy was much more remote, more rigid and was running into trouble in the 70s in a way that it probably isn't today. Um, so if you're a Republican, in some ways you could argue the late 70s were a better time to be a Republican. You had more hope uh, than you probably
0: do now where you have no hope at all. <laughs> Should we move across? the gentleman in the middle with the blue shirt had his hand up from the beginning.
1: Thank you, Dominic. That sort of be the TV series. Oh, thank you. Was really, really good. My um, one observation was arguably Mrs. Thatcher's impact came well into her first term, so 83, 84 onwards, with both the Falklands and the, mm-hmm.
0: the battle with the miners. Miners, yeah. Possibly the early 70s, where she was still surrounded by the legacy of Ted Heath's cabinet as colleagues.
3: Yeah, the early 80s. yeah. She
0: started.
1: Mm. Is indicative that she has one, that one individual did make an impact, just in my opinion. Okay. My other observation was in the
0: riots in London last year, did we reach a similar nadir, albeit for a short period in time to the January 79 of the weeks of discontent in
1: terms mm-hmm. of the national psyche and national pessimism? Yeah. Uh, the answer to that on the riots, I don't think so. Because I, don't, I think although uh, colonists and commentators might see the riots, you know it's a very easy sort of, it's an open goal really, or they're indicative of a culture of delinquency and joblessness and all the rest of it. Um, I don't think the riots are taken as uh, symptomatic of a kind of chronic sickness in a way that events maybe in the 70s might have been. Uh, because I don't think people think that Britain is chronically sick, in a way that people did then, or in 81, for example, where the riots seemed to, um, they seem to represent the fact that something had gone wrong in the inner cities and all of that kind of thing. I don't think they can be linked so easily to sort of deeper political problems. Uh, And Thatcher impact, I think um, there's a clear divide between Thatcher before 83, 84 and Thatcher afterwards and the difference obviously is that before then it's all um, the battle is raging if you like and it's not clear to anybody who will prevail Uh, people on the left can still tell themselves even after 1983 well we've lost the election but the miners will defeat her as they defeated Heath uh, I think after 84, 80, obviously 85, when they go back to work, it feels very different. She's worn, she's no longer, the sort of the housewife persona has now totally disappeared. She's shoulder pads, big hair, and sort of Britannia incarnate and all that kind of thing. And there's a sense suddenly of um, the, the invulnerability about the Tory high command, which obviously will trip her up eventually in 1990. So the sort of seeds of her decline, if you like, of being sown right then, so I think there is a difference. You know, it's easy to forget that in 1980, for a lot of you know, 1981 she was miles behind in the opinion polls, even under Michael Foote, Labour were far ahead, and then the, the SDP Liberal Alliance were ahead, so it wasn't clear to people that she was all conquering uh, until midway through the decade. And it's, it's extraordinary
0: also, isn't it, that one of the defining things, I think you'd probably agree, with when we think about Thatcherism, is Euroscepticism. Mm. Yeah, as you show beautifully, she actually led the yes yeah. campaign in and the, that in the, jumper. In the a jumper adorned
1: with all the European flags.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, Unbelievable. The, so you're quite right. It's very much <laughs> post hoc wasn't it? So let's take some more. Um, Should we come down to this chat? I will move across next.
2: Well, me? I'm a devotee of alternative history, who wishes you, who's hoping they're going to bring back your your ones in the new statesman.
1: Oh, what, what right. difference
2: do you think it would have made if Heath had won in seventy yeah. four, or a state leader who returned as PM in 77
1: uh, if Heath had won in 1974 or what was the second bit or if he state conservative leader returned as PM in 77 um, what difference would it have made well I think with all these counterfactuals actually they would have made a difference in the sort of terms of the headlines if you like personnel might have been different, who's to say there'd have been elections in different years the governments would have had different personnel but I know not everybody would agree with this but to me the trends are more, the social and political trends point in one direction Um, and that was obvious to sort of social commentators at the time when they'd go into sort of you know the radical activist Jeremy Seabrook went and wrote books about Wigan and Blackburn and he commented on Consumerism and individualism transforming these things, so if let 's say Heath had won in um, seventy that, four that what we call Thatcherism. I think would still have evolved in one shape or other, maybe under Heath, maybe under somebody else. of course, if Heath had won in seventy four mm. it wouldn 't have done him any good in the short term because he 'd still have been facing a minor strike. it 's odd that he called that election at all as a sort of get out of jail card because it wasn 't I don't. You know, the election would have been so close that he wouldn't have had a mandate to do anything. He'd just still faced exactly the same problems. What might have happened is that Heath might have pursued more, what seemed to us more Thatcherite measures purely to try and get inflation down. Um, but then you'd have, you know, if Heath had been more radical, if he'd been more, given the amount of unrest his policies provoked in the early 70s, he'd probably provoked a general strike. It was a possibility of a general strike in 1972. Um, so in some ways, you know, of course, the course of events would have been different, but I think Britain would still have, there would still have been a shift towards sort of private sector away from public. I think there would still have been things like council house sales. Uh, There would still have been a a reduction eventually of, of taxation and shift towards indirect taxes. Those things that we associate with Thatcherism, I think, would still have happened, even if Labour had been in power. I think that's something that probably, it's almost slightly convenient for both parties to because the Tories were in for so long. And, but I think the truth is if Callaghan and Healy had been running Britain in the 80s, we might not have had full-blown Thatcherism, but you'd have had something not dissimilar from it. Um, the alternative, which was a sort of Bennite, I don't think would ever have, um, it's hard to imagine the scenario in which Tony Benn would have been running Britain. <laughs> <laughs> little shudder. Just take one at the back, and then we'll, then we'll
0: move over to the other side, yeah?
3: Um, firstly, on a point of information, the first major royal event since the coronation was Prince Charles's Vestager. investiture at Castle, not Princess Anne's wedding. Um, secondly, as someone who was 20 in 1979 and thus was able to vote in the election for the first time, it struck me very much as if there was a very, very great choice to be made and that continuing on, on one course would lead to complete disaster and voting for Mrs Thatcher would certainly (coughs) make um, some attempt to um, improve matters. And if you say that you don't think that... um, what she did was very different from what Callaghan might have done. I think there were two ways in which the Thatcher government made a lot of difference. One was that she tamed the trade unions. Callaghan simply could never have done that, right from in place of strife back in 1969. He was just totally enthralled to the unions. He could never have tamed them. Um, And secondly, she... Um, certainly enabled Britain to become very much more entrepreneurial. As a grocer's daughter, she had a very entrepreneurial mentality, which Callaghan would never have fostered.
1: Okay, um, on the investiture, uh, you're right. The investiture was in '69. I question how, just how, um, whether it was an event with the same kind of public impact as the '73 wedding. I- Fair enough, fair enough. (laughs) I have a man in the front row, the editor of my book, who I won't identify for uh, fear of embarrassing him. I think wrote a poem, a song about uh, (laughs) Suzanne's wedding. Which he will now (laughs) recite. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, Right, first of all, on the trade unions, I think you're absolutely right. Um, I think Camerhan had fallen out of love with them by 79. I think he was shocked, absolutely stunned, by um, what happened in the winter of discontent. He felt that he had done everything for them, particularly with blocking in place of strife, and he felt cheated. But even so, had he been returned as prime minister, uh, the Labour Party would never have allowed him to um, push reforms in the same way that Mrs Thatcher did. So you're right about that. The entrepreneurial thing... I, I, I suppose you're right to an extent. Mrs. Thatcher did have this sort of, it's a question of tone as much as anything, I think. Um, a, a, a sort of question of rhetoric, as much as it is a policy. Um, the emphasis on small business and free enterprise and all that kind of thing. Yes, it's, it's, I think it's true that she placed a greater accent on that than a Labour government would have done. The only thing I would say is I think as, in, in economic terms, there's much more continuity between Dennis Healy and Geoffrey Howe as chancellors than we often think. Healy had increased taxes to pretty high levels, but he'd been bringing them down since then. I think if Healy had been chancellor, he would have cut income tax. He probably would have put up VAT in the early 80s as Geoffrey Howe did. Not to the same extent, but of course Healy used to boast afterwards that he was a better monetarist than Geoffrey Howe. He said we both had money supply targets, but Howe missed all his, whereas I hit mine. Um, So... I, certainly the sort of mood music, if you like, would have been different. But I wonder about in terms of policy, would it have been quite so different as we often think? Let's just go to this side. Can we
0: get the microphone over here? Uh, chap in the yellow shirt. Uh, <coughs> the, first point I was wrong, um, the first point I'd
4: like to make is that uh, I thought your whole description of the decade is absolutely... Uh, in conformity to, with my memory. Oh, thank goodness. But it wasn't very. <laughs> de- it wasn't very <laughs> no, was on de-
1: there.
4: De- <laughs> um, one thing you didn't really mention, uh, which I think made it even more depressing, was the Cold War. Right, yeah. And the spread of communism. It was by no means certain then that communism would not triumph over capitalism. Yeah. And, um, and of course, one remembers that the Carter administration was in power then, and, 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 you know, that wasn't seen as giving much leadership. So there was quite a depressed feeling in the West generally, mm-hmm. apart from just this country.
1: Yes, so I think um, you're, you're dead right about that. Um, there was all sorts of commentary in the mid to late 70s that the Soviets are winning the Cold War. The advances in Angola and Mozambique and so on. The US had been defeated in Vietnam. Uh, Jimmy Carter didn't have a particularly high international reputation, as you <coughs> say. And of course, Margaret Thatcher traded on that, didn't she? I mean, uh, she'd been nicknamed the Iron Lady by the Russian uh, army newspaper, I think it is Red Star. She gloried in the nickname. Uh, she talked a lot about communism, about the threat of international socialism, um, and that was clearly a factor. I think it's difficult to say how much you know ordinary voters thought about it, but certainly for sort of opinion-forming type people, the sort of people who would move rightwards, the sort of Kingsley Amuses if you like, they talked a lot about communism, about the threat of international communism uh, we, you know, we're appeasing the, the USSR they're going to win, all that kind of thing um, so I think certainly for some groups in society that uh, formed a very important part of the kind of mosaic, if you like, of sort of misery uh, in the mid to late 70s Yeah
2: So much, uh, John Yule. I'd like to ask a little bit more about 1978, because one thing you didn't mention was that, frankly, and I remember as a young voter at the time, we were led a merry dance. Uh, so when I say we, oui, mm-hmm. uh, at TU, uh, the TUC, Jim Cameron even burst into song. He did indeed. And so it was a definite feeling of uh, feeling of uh, of uh, uh, letdown uh, when the election wasn't called. So my question, my my main question, is quite simply what would have happened in a <laughs> 1978 election, not only without the winter discontent, mm-hmm. but also without a Scottish referendum which precipitated the successful motion of no competence. Because after all, an pact had ended. And if I may also ask another totally different <laughs> question but on a more light hearted matter, right. namely, what was the uh, what was the cultural significance of punk and disco? This time, well, all, frankly, okay. needed a break from
1: all the all the more miserable stuff. Okay, right. The first question: the 1978 counterfactual. You can have a lot of fun with this. Um, you're, you're right in that it was totally foolish of Callaghan to have allowed the bubble to grow and grow and grow before he punctured it. Um, it was even more foolish of him to have gone to the TUC and sung, uh, "There was I waiting at the church," uh, sort of suggesting that he would call an election, and then to let them down a week later. All the union leaders felt, and not just that, but the press as well, felt used and sort of betrayed. They'd been led to believe there would be an election. Everybody had prepared for it. Even his own advisers were astonished when he and his cabinet were astonished when he didn't call one. That was um, very foolish of him, I think. Now, had he called the election before the Winter of Discontent, what would have happened? Well, you know, Callaghan's own polls private polls done for him by Bob Worcester of Mori and his reading of the sort of local election results and so on suggested that it would be a very close one, the Tories would probably win one or two more seats than Labour and the only way that he would survive as PM which was perfectly possible was by doing another deal with the Liberals uh, and he said he just couldn't face it and I wonder whether the Labour left would have accepted it actually uh, because there was so much dissatisfaction about the Liberal Pact on the Labour left they might well have said we we haven't really won, it's a bit like 2010 we haven't really won, let's let the Tories have a go they'll make a mess of it and we'll be back soon Um, of course then the winter of discontent would have happened probably would have happened one way or another so whoever was PM would have then had to deal with that and that would have been very damaging so in some ways you could argue for Labour it would have been better to let Thatcher come in earlier and have the winter of discontent on her plate Um, the, the only other thing I'll say about that though is The polls in 79 consistently underestimated the Tory vote. So given that, it's therefore even more unlikely that Labour would have won a majority in 78. And possible that Mrs. Thatcher would have won a kind of minority. um, And then, you know, had the winter discontent. Then happened on her watch. She could have gone to the country again a year later and said, now give me the mandate to you know, finish them off, effectively. Um, So that's my answer on that. On the punk and disco, um, that's a big question. (laughs) Uh, th- I'll say, I, they're clearly very different. Um, <laughs> maybe I should, that, that's probably most banal <laughs> answer anyone's ever given. Um, uh, punk's impact, mind. it seems to me, is in many ways more artistic and aesthetic than it is musical. So in other words, punk has this enormous impact on typography and design, on magazines, on kind of pop culture more broadly. Disco uh, is, was much more popular at the time. If you look at sales of records, disco was far more popular. The reason is because you could dance to it, so it was more um, an obvious hit with the sort of teenage girl market, which dominated record buying, and also cross-generational, kind of ideological, temperamental boundaries. It was unthreatening in a way that punk wasn't. But clearly, punk has this despite its lack of chart impact has this enduring impact in terms of fashion and so on in a way that you know disco probably um hot pants have have never really made a comeback so um (laughs) sadly uh yeah i think i think that would be the the difference between them yeah disco is more popular at the time but punk is probably more influential and enduring
0: yeah and the the one the one not complaint I have, but reservation <laughs> about the book is the bloody title, because it just means that <laughs> the, we, the song is stuck in your head for <laughs> the rest of the day. Uh,
2: can we go to here? Uh, gentleman there, please. Thank you. you. mentioned David Sterling. I mentioned it, because I actually had some dealing with him some years ago. I did talk to him about a project I was engaged with, of psychological warfare mm. in the 20th century, and he put me on to a military man at Chelsea Barracks, and I discussed a paper. Now, I'm not too much not agreeing with the politics. He seemed a charming man to speak to. You did mention him, and he was involved in some conspiracies at that time. I, could you just fill me out a little bit more about that?
1: Right, sure. Uh, so, there were two sort of rival um, uh, British penachets in waiting, as it were, who were General Sir Walter Walker, the hero of Burma, who'd been the commander of you know, NATO forces in northwestern Europe, and Sterling. Um, SAS and uh, they both formed these groups. Uh, Walter Walker's was called Civil Assistance and he had it all planned out, a great network of uh, regional controllers in every village and um, who would step in to secure essential services in the event of a general strike and David Sterling's was called GB75 and that was sort of the same thing really but Sterling was much uh, you know, Sterling was motivated by what he saw as his patriotism and his belief that the country was in trouble and that the left were going to take over and the unions were the Trojan horse and all of this kind of thing. But Sterling was much less comfortable with the limelight than Walter Walker. So it's basically as soon as the newspapers exposed Sterling's organization, he then um, retired from it and sort of went back into the shadows. And I think the man that took it over was an Irish millionaire called John Martin Martin
2: when did stone, die, in the I don't know when he died no, no.
1: Um, so John Martin Martin took over GB75 and it was sort of absorbed, semi-absorbed I think into civil assistance and then they both their clientele then went to the um, National Association for Freedom uh, Freedom Association uh, which Ross McWherter had, Ross and Norris McWherter had established and which then became famous in the Grunwick strike so that sort of, there was only really room for one of those organizations on the right, and it was the Freedom Association, that, which was, you know, didn't have the kind of militaristic associations of the others that sort of emerged as the standard bearer, and Sterling went back into okay. sort of quiet retirement. Okay, we're
0: running out of time, but let's take a couple more. One at the very back, and then I'll come to you. Thank you very much. Um, As you said, it was a a period of uncertainty and uh, and change. Um, One of the most extraordinary changes, perhaps, was the resignation of of Harold Wilson, Mm -hmm. which uh, came like a bolt from the
1: blue to most people.
0: Um, Could you tease that out a bit, do you think, the the circumstances uh, and the reasons, and also perhaps go a little bit into the uh, the contortions inside the Labour Party about the succession, or, or do you think it was actually a shoe in for Jim
1: Callaghan? Right, uh, sure. Um, it's an amazing thing. Whenever I give talks in the 70s, people often ask about Wilson's resignation. It's an amazing thing that there's so much mystery still attached to it, and it says something about Wilson and the perception of Wilson as sort of murky, when in fact it was a very straightforward story. Wilson always said, even if he'd got back in 1970 that he would only do a couple more years because he wanted to beat, I think, Asquith. Uh, he wanted to be the longest-serving, sort of continuous prime minister um, of the 20th century. Then, you know, he has to put that off because he loses in 70. But then when he came back in 1974, he told all his colleagues, I'll only do two years. He told the Queen, I'll only do two years. His aides knew that he wouldn't last long. He made it very clear to them he wasn't well he wasn't happy being prime minister. Uh, he used to say to them, they used to write speeches for him and whatnot. He, to, he would say to them, what's the point? I've got nothing to say, um, which is unfortunate <laughs> maybe from uh, a, a prime minister, same old answers to the same, I've got same old answers to the same problems, he said. Um, so why he resigned is precisely for that reason. The interesting thing is that nobody ever believed him. So they then thought it was a tremendous shock. He told Jim Callahan three times Before he resigned. And yet, on the day itself, Callaghan was still reportedly white with surprise and shock, which doesn't say much for Callaghan's faith in Wilson's promises. (laughs) Um, So that's why he resigned. Uh, He was tired. He felt like he was getting old. He was drinking a little bit more. He felt that his mind was going. Uh, He was just exhausted by the pressures of leadership. He'd had a pretty miserable time as Prime Minister. He always felt that his colleagues were plotting against him and disloyal. He'd been battered by economic events, so it's not surprising that he just had had enough. There's no—I don't think there is any murky story behind it. As for the uh, leadership, it's an interesting thing about the Labour leadership election 76 because it had been one of the most widely sort of trailed contests. People had been gathering their forces since, you know practically since 1964 when they first went into office, Roy Jenkins and Jim Callaghan and so on, and yet when it came to it all of what the the people Wilson used to call his crown princes had sort of torpedoed themselves, except for Callaghan, who was seen as the the sort of man at the centre of the party, Um, the keeper of the cloth cap, as he used to be nicknamed, the man who sort of epitomised what ordinary Labour voters wanted. And the person who had once been the favourite, Roy Jenkins, had shot himself in the foot, largely because of his European enthusiasm. Labour was quite a pretty Eurosceptic party, in the 70s and Jenkins was too European and also the mood of the party had changed in the 60s where it had been modernizing and you know sort of slick and streamlined and everything that white heat stuff in the 70s it was much more self-consciously a working man's party um, even though a lot of the activists of course weren't working men at all they were university educated idealists but precisely for that reason they were very keen to kind of cultivate the proletarian image and Roy Jenkins didn't fit that image at all so his campaign rather sank without trace and Callaghan got in. Of course, Michael Foote won a lot of votes, as the standard bearer of the left, but nobody, I think, even as soon as Wilson fired the gun, nobody doubted that Callaghan would um, come out on top.
0: Very last question,
1: just down here.
4: Uh, I wanted to pick up the thing about punk music but right. first, <laughs> first I um, wanted to perhaps make an observation about the 70s as a personal journey yeah in 1974 I started university here huh. um, in 1978 my dad was part of the Ford shop steward group that bust the the pay right. deal. Um and he said at the time that he had the impression that it would be their last chance mm-hmm. to get some money and he didn't care who was in power afterwards. No. Um, and by 1980, I was quite active in militant, so I don't know where, the, where that goes from. Um, but <laughs> punk music. Um, I remember Rock Against Racism, things like yeah. that, on the tails of it. And I mean, I didn't think at the time, but I suppose I then started fighting the culture wars. Mm-hmm. I, s- I guess we could say we won the culture wars, though, didn't we, in some sort of way? Yes, in
1: some ways. I think the one way of thinking about it is that Britain generally became more liberal in all sorts of ways economically more liberal in sort of that right way but also culturally more liberal. Uh, it's an, a great irony that in many ways Mrs. Thatcher elected in 1979 sort of I think in her heart of hearts dreamed of turning back the clock to 1950 and of course by the time she left office Britain had become much more culturally diverse, much more tolerant um, much more permissive in ways that she didn't really approve of so in some ways, yes, you're gonna define it in those terms. If there was a culture war, she definitely didn't win. Um, Rock Against Racism, an interesting one. I think Rock Against Racism is very important because I think what it did was to really stigmatize racism among young people in a way that it hadn't quite been beforehand. Um, it's astonishing you know, to look back on um, the sort of stuff that was on prime time TV in the mid-70s, <coughs> the comedians, the Wheel Tappers and Sons of Social Club, Bernard Manning, uh, sort of Alf Garnett character, but, but love thy neighbour. Um, and I think one thing that Rock Against Racism did um, was that it made it uncool to be racist and to voice anything like uh, racial prejudices. And I think that was very important, actually, shifting attitudes among the younger generation. So, so that it, yeah, you're right about that. And I guess some... Um, uh, on the, it's interesting about your dad and the Ford thing. I wonder what he thought later, how he felt about busting there.
4: Uh, well, um, <laughs> he spent his whole life wanting me to have a nice white office, middle class office job, white collar middle class office job, and then hated me for getting it,
3: frankly. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, that's a brilliant note I think to end the idea of intergenerational change isn't it um, I should say Dominic is going to be going outside to sign copies of his book so if you can let him exit uh, in a second to, to, to do that uh, as I've already puffed it like mad it's great fun and my favourite fact on the cultural side was to remind us that uh, David, David Bowie's fascist phase um, <laughs> but anyway I just want to thank you all for some fantastic questions but especially thank Dominic for a wonderful talk Thank you.
2: Thanks, buddy.